I'm Abby Wamba, and this is Why We Laugh. It's a podcast about why we laugh. I'm talking to scientists and psychologists and comedians and humor writers about what makes them laugh, how they make other people laugh, and what laughter is for anyway. Thanks for being here. You seem like a really nice person from what I can tell. Hey, welcome to another episode of Why We Laugh. In this episode, I'm talking to comedian Liz Mealy, who has been performing stand-up for over 20 years and is the same age as me, so 40 times as long of stand-up comedy in the same amount of time. Pretty good. Pretty good. She's got a lot going on. She's touring again. She's got a podcast. She's got a new book out, but she made time to talk to me about what makes her laugh, how she makes other people laugh, stand-up comedy, her parents, and cats. And we are going to get right into that interview after these messages from our sponsors, Confidence and Houseplants. Do you want to try something new without worrying what other people will think? Do you want to really go for something without thinking you're not worthy? Do you want to have any social interactions at all without replaying them afterwards and hating yourself? The answer is confidence. Confidence will have you going through your daily routines, same as usual, but without all the concern that you're really a sack of shit and everybody is just about to find out. Having confidence feels like doing stuff and being pretty sure you're not messing up and then not being shocked about that. Unfortunately, confidence is not available anywhere. You have to want it, but not so bad that other people can tell. You can try to procure confidence on two popular paths, getting good at everything you care about or stopping to care about anything. There are other paths to confidence, but they involve painful self-reflection and sitting with your feelings, and you don't want to do that, do you? Confidence. Another thing you can feel bad about not having. Angela, I thought we were going to your house. What are we still doing outside? This is my house, silly. We're inside. But there's flora growing inside your home. Oh, these? These are houseplants, Carol. Houseplants are plants that grow inside your home to make you feel like you're outside without any of the physical discomfort of rain, wind, or animal attacks. You mean you get to enjoy the beauty of nature without any physical discomfort? Well, yes. The only discomfort I feel around my houseplants is emotional. But the rain. Don't houseplants need rain to survive? (laughs) Well, that's the one little catch. I have to figure out how to be the rain, and I get it wrong all the time. But that's okay, because who wants to sleep in a house with only children to undernourish? (laughs) House plants. From the people who brought you outdoor furniture. I love that your microphone thing looks like a like a tiny bear. Uh, yeah, it looks like a little Russian hat, I feel like. <laughs> it's so cute. It's so cute. I feel like if your microphone isn't wearing fur. Yeah, is it even ready to record? <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, Liz Mealy, comedian and recently published author. And I will say that to nauseam. I, I don't even know if nauseam is a word. I was looking it up. I think I made that word up. But it's a word. I can't find it. I was like looking it up actually. It's been really annoying. It usually is with ad nauseum, I think is how it's usually. Ad, yeah, ad nauseum. But I say, I love how I say that after I say I'm a published author. I had an editor. <laughs> I am dyslexic. Somebody did most of the work for me. But yeah, I've already annoyed my family where I'm just like, I don't know if I can do the dishes because I'm a published author. Because it in. turns out I have a book. Yeah. So. That yeah. sold like seven copies. So. Woohoo! I'm going to get one. <laughs> Why cats are assholes. Uh, I think that's really exciting. People seem really excited about it on the internet. Yeah, and I feel like it, it's both sides can be on board with it, right? If you like cats, you know that they're assholes and you agree with it because nobody that loves cats is going to be offended because they're like, she's not wrong. And then if you don't like cats, you're like, I knew it. 
And I would love to see the data of why this is true. True. This is like a political book in a way I didn't realize. (laughs) (laughs) You're really just like walking down the middle of the street being like, I got everybody on board. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Wow. Okay. So Liz Mealy for president. I think that's clear. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, cool. Can you tell me about a time that you remember laughing really hard at something? I was just talking to one of my girlfriends, a a comedian, Adrian Appalucci. I was telling her, like, I can't wait next month when you're vaccinated and not even to do shows together just because we would always go to diners and meet up in between shows or after shows. And she just makes me gut laugh. Like, she makes me laugh on stage. But, like, I remember before I broke up with my boyfriend, I was reading a text from him that was just so melodramatic and it was just making me so angry. And she made a joke, just a really dark, fucked up joke. And I fell out of the booth laughing, like just (laughs) genuinely, what she said was like so spot on, but also like only we could talk. Like, I'm not gonna even tell you what the joke is because it was just not appropriate and not nice to my ex either, but he was just being so melodramatic. And I was laughing so hard because I just needed her to see my perspective. And I fell out of the booth laughing so hard. And I have a cackle. Like, I'm a really, I'm a great audience member. Like, me and my, like, everyone in my family, all my siblings, we all have cackles. So, like, a lot of times I'll watch, like, the comedian before me or whatever, especially when I'm headlining. And they'll be like, oh, Jesus, that girl likes me too much. And it's me. Like, it's the headliner. Because I just have, like, I'm like, you should be honored that you got my cackle. And I've never been one of those people that's like, you know, I've seen too much comedy. I don't laugh anymore. That's just not true. If it's good, I laugh. But I was laughing so hard that like I couldn't and she and what's nice about it is, of course, that's all our goals. But like when you when it's a friend, that's a comedian. When I was talking to her today, I was just like, I just miss our friendship in person and just being just ridiculous in ourselves. And that's those are the laughs I really remember. It's actually not really audiences. It's when I make a like a friend or a boyfriend or my roommates, like just somebody laugh. Even my mom, like, that's how it all started. Like, my mom has a great sense of humor, always stressed, never in a good mood. And the way to kind of get her out of it is to make her laugh. And so even now, when I make her laugh, I'm like, it's the best, that's the best feeling. I wonder how many comedians started comedy because they had to figure out how to get their parents out of a shitty mood. Oh, yeah, yeah, How do I not get punished? My kid was doing that to me today, actually. And I was like, I don't know what to do right now. I see what is going on and I approve. And also, when I'm done videotaping this, you go in your room. <laughs> I was just listening to your podcast and, and you, they were talking about how you're really good at segues and you were doing obvious segues and you just did one. And it was so good. Because my next question is, can you, what's the earliest time you can remember making someone else laugh? Can you tell a specific time? Yeah, it's got to be my mom. It started out with, I was obsessed with like SNL and any kind of movie or something, but it was really like, when I was really young, it was something like SNL and like sketches like that. Like I grew up in like late 80s, early 90s. So when I was in elementary school, it was Dana Carvey and Mike Myers and Chris Farley and Chris Rock and David Spade, like that kind of crew. And, you know, it was doing coffee talk. And I'm, I still don't do voices. I'm not a character person, but I, I remember being like coffee talk, you know, like we're doing coffee talk. Is it a chick or a pea? Chickpeas, you decide. Like just being like very silly and quoting other people. And when I discovered stand up, I got really into Paula Poundstone and I think she had a big influence on me because she was the only one talking about cats. And now that's <laughs> how I have cat jokes on every album I have. And that's how I got my book deal. But she would talk about cats and just how weird they were. And she would have these like weird jokes. And I would, I would quote them at the dinner table. And I, I remember just by being silly or quoting other comedians, it would, I remember my mom crying and yelling. That's it. I'm sure I'm missing some memories. I think those memories are worse. It was just not a great upbringing and that I know I took in comedy as a a self-survival and it was the only time I felt good. But I think also it was a way to connect with two parents that were just completely disconnected. They were providers. I'm grateful. I I don't have any complaints about my parents as humans and people that had five kids and, you know, had very little family and doing their best to survive. But I don't, remember ever being happy, you know, except for comedy. And I remember making my parents 
laugh and feeling like I was doing something good in a situation where I felt like I was always the problem. Mm. Did you do that at school? I don't know. I really don't have a lot of memories and I didn't have a lot of friends. So I actually just spent a month with my only childhood friend, my friend Danny. We met in a bathroom when we were 10. Um, <laughs> don't, you, don't you remember the days where like you made friends in bathrooms and weird yeah. places and that didn't sound creepy? But I either she made me laugh because she's really funny or I made her laugh. I do not remember, but we like clicked in a bathroom, never saw her again, blah, blah, blah. And then this girl Pinky was in my fourth grade class and I went to a sleepover and that was her neighbor. And so we like hung out the whole time. Did you go to like Greece school with Danny and Pinky? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we all have uh, fun names. So I had like reconnected with her in this bathroom. I mean, in the, at the sleepover. And we like did all the games together. And we like our sleeping bags were next to each other. I invited her to my birthday party. She invited her. And then serendipitously, she was in my fifth grade class and my sixth grade class. And then she moved away and I moved away. But we've stayed connected. And I just remember she like we made each other laugh. And we just I felt like I could be myself. And I just... I don't have strong memories of how we connected because we were like 10, 11, 12. I remember dancing a lot and having like dance contests, whatever you do as like a little girl. But I remember just clearly connecting with her. But then I spent this month with her. She now has an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old. And her kids are so funny. They're like almost the age that we met. They're so funny. But like, she's so funny. Like, Mm -hmm. here we are. Like, we spend maybe a week together once a year. And it was a, a real gift to be able to stay with her for a month. But she's so funny. Like I just probably laugh. Like she probably said something made me laugh. I don't even know if I was, I was a really shy kid. So I don't even know if I made her laugh as much as I was like, Oh, this feels safe. Like funny feels safe to me. So I don't, even in high school, like I really didn't end up making friends again until high school. And I'm still close with a couple of girlfriends. I remember just being really shy and sad and, and I'm a very loyal person, but I don't actually, I think it took me a long time to actually show who I was. And I remember telling my friend Amanda when I was 14 that I wanted to be a comedian and they were like, they weren't like, you're not funny or da, 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 da. They were like, oh, for your birthday, I got you this book on joke writing and uh. oh, I met this guy and he does comedy. Maybe you could talk to them. Like it shows you just what good people they were. But I personally don't think I was like, I was never a class clown. I was actually really shy and quiet. But what I talked about was comedy. What I showed people, and you know, this is, you know, 99, 2000. I'm talking about like VHS tapes that I taped off my TV. And then I'd go to my girlfriend's house and I'd show them Mitch Hedberg. Like it took real work to be a nerd. And I was like all in. And then of course my friend's in high school are like making out with people and doing drugs. And I'm just like, Hey guys, have you seen <laughs> Red Geraldo? He's really funny. Like, <laughs> I heard you were like corresponding with George Carlin. Is this right? Yeah. So when I was, so I kind of broke the news to my family cause I was going to be, the, my parents are veterinarians and uh-huh. I was the crazy cat lady, obviously that loved cats and I was going to be the veterinarian. And then I discovered stand up, and I was like, fuck that. And <laughs> I got really into it. I started writing jokes. I started like, but I kind of was like, oh, I can't do it until I'm in my twenties. Right. And my dad told me if I, my dad's like, my parents have been encouraging in very different ways, but my dad was like, if you want to do this, you should ask the people that have already done it and accomplished what you want, how they got there. So I spent months looking for addresses, email addresses, anything. And I wrote to about 40 comedians and only two people got back to me. Judd Apatow, who I've recently, I met him once briefly at the cellar, but like in a very passing way. But I ended up emailing him about something recently and telling him about this. And he's like, please say I was nice. Please say I was nice. I was like, you're very nice. (laughs) I was his kid's uh, camp counselor. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. So that's all. That's what I'm going to tell him one day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I I watched your kids. They seem very well behaved. Yeah. He his email was still on his website because this was post Freaks and Geeks, but before like Four Year Old Virgin and everything he's done since. So he was still accessible. So he wrote me back right away. It was very nice. Stay in school. Blah blah blah. But George Carlin, my dad told me to write this email like a like a business letter. So it was like my name, my address, my phone oh my, number. Oh my God! You had letterhead. 
Yeah, he made me format it. You know, remember like old word where they're like, are you writing a letter? And then they would format it for you. So it was, it was my name, my full address, my full email address and my phone number. Cause my dad said, you don't know how people want to contact you. And I wrote him, I found an address. It wasn't until later I found out he had an office in Los Angeles, I believe. And he would go there every day and write his jokes. Like he was very diligent. So I somehow got that address and I wrote to him. And he called me when I was 15 years old and was like, hey, if you want to do stand up, it gave me like very basic advice because God knows he's been doing it like 40 years and nothing is the same in 2000. I think it was 2000 or 2001, but super nice. And he's like, you can write to me anytime. So I did. I would keep him in the loop. I would ask him questions. He always got back to me when I did stand up for the first time. I told him I was profiled in the New Yorker. I sent the magazine. He called me to tell me what a great article gave me tickets for me and my girlfriends to see him in New Brunswick, sent signed books to me, got uh, lunch with me when I was 19. When I was on TV for the first time, I told him about it. He said he was going to watch. Sadly, he died not too long afterwards. But like we had this kind of kept in touch and it was just very encouraging. And then everybody I've ever met from like the 60s to when he died, like everyone has the same story. Like if you wow. saw Judd Apatow actually had um did a docu a two-part documentary on Gary Shandling. And there's a George Carlin story where Gary gave George his jokes and was like, Do you have any advice? And George came back the next day and had pages of notes for him. Oh like, wow. I've always said about George Carlin, like, of course he's a legend, he's brilliant, what a incredible mind, but his influence was who he was as a person. Cause I was raised by good people and I've always done my best to be a good person, but life weighs on you and people hurt you. And it, there's so many things that kind of chip away at how you were raised in that kindness. And I always remember that at his peak, he was a legend. He was in his late sixties, early seventies. And he made 10 minutes of time for me uh, every couple of months. And like, uh, one of the things I was showing Judd was some of these, um, emails or whatever, but like some of these questions are dumb. Like it's almost embarrassing that I asked this legend some of these questions and he always answered, like, it wasn't like, Hey, I don't know, or whatever. It was just like, these are great questions. You know, this is what I had done. You know, things are very different. Now. You're just like, what? Mm -hmm. Why? So I, I try to remember that. And whenever I start to feel like jaded or angry or like whatever, I try to think one, what are some good boundaries to have? Cause you don't need people, you know, life is limited and you can't give everybody your time, but also what's the best way that I can have an impact on somebody that was important to me and I can give back. That's so cool. What an amazing thing to come back to when it's frustrating and hard that this legend had carved out this time and was so generous with it. That's so awesome. Just always amazes me. Yeah. It's such a great story. I was thinking about how you have been doing this a long time. You started you knew that you wanted to do this when you were 14, you just said. Was it before that even? When did you? No, so I started writing when I was 14. I got on stage for the first time when I was 16. Wow, 16. And where did you do it? So weird. The cellar, the comedy cellar in New York wow. City had a bringer show. So the host is was Dean Obidala, who's a friend of mine still. And, you know, I do his, he's now on SiriusXM. And, and he always reminds me that he's known me since I was 16. But I had to bring five paid guests and... A couple of friends from high school that I mentioned before came to it. And so I started out with a bringer show. Then I did like open mics and stuff like that. I would come in every weekend. But when I got passed at the cellar four years ago, I was talking to Esty, who's the booker. And I almost like I made a mistake because we were just talking and she brought something up. I was like, oh, you know, my first ever show was at the cellar. And she's like, because <laughs> she was just like, I, they don't, they want to be known as the best of the best. And there was this period that they were just like any <laughs> other club and they had bringer shows. And I think she was kind of like, Ooh, I don't want to remember that. But I want to be like, but I came out of that, Esty. Like, why wouldn't that make you proud? But I get her perspective. But at the same time, like, it does make me feel good to think 16-year-old me had her first set here and didn't know what she was doing. And now I perform at, like, one of the best clubs in the country, if not, you know, the world. Yeah, that's so cool. Do you remember any – do you remember a joke from that set? So I don't remember jokes. There was my friend, uh, Julia Razi had a first set show. This is maybe like four years ago where you would do like a 10 minute set of what you're currently doing. And then you would give her a tape and she would play after your set, like a couple of minutes from your first set. And mine was VHS. And I was like, dude, I have the VHS, but I don't, you know, I can't watch it. She's like, give it to me. I'll convert it. So she converted it and I watched it for the, and she sent it to me, which was horrible. And what was crazy about it is so while the audience is watching it, I'm watching it for oh the first God. time. And like, 
12, 13 years and I'm watching it and I'm horrified. You know what I mean? It's just little, I already look young and this is like this tiny little girl and like, and I had, I remembered I had gotten laughs like here and there, but I'm doing like act out some, like I don't act, I barely move now. <laughs> but you know, I was influenced clearly by everything that I was watching. And Julia was the one that like, after it was done, she goes, you kind of have the same topics. Like you talked about your parents not getting along. You talked about therapy because my parents forced me to go into therapy when I was like 14. And then uh, you talked about animals. And my set was like, this is what my therapist said. Oh, my parents. Like, it was almost like, I was like, oh, oh I my haven't grown at all. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you, do you feel like the way that you you use your jokes has changed? I mean, your topics have, have stayed the same, but do you think that like your methods are different? Oh, absolutely. I mean, your methods have to have to grow. I think what I, I think two things have happened. One, who I am, I took the, the shell off and I was able to expose a part of myself I was too scared to expose. So I think the longer you do this, if you do it right, who you are, the uniqueness of who you are is able to shine through and you are authentically yourself. But I think on the other side of it, you learn skills and tools to show who you are better. So mm-hmm. think of like an artist where you might have a style that's innately there, but if you take classes and you get better, you're going to take what you already have and make them sharper and brighter and better and more consistent. So Funny Liz, when I was younger, was shy and inconsistent. And Funny Liz in her 30s is more open and consistent. So I think that's really, if you do it right, I think that's what happens. And I can see that with friends I started with almost 20 years ago, where they, Adrian has always been Adrian. Carmen Lynch has always been Carmen Lynch. But through time, you perfect this part of you. And that's where unique voices shine. As opposed to some people, they go, what's funny? And they're searching all around. Mm. And they might be able to carry a joke, but you're not really getting to know them better. They're just like almost like a, a, a storyteller that's telling l- like lores and, and folk tales and shit. But that's, you're not getting to know them better or you're not getting to know their perspective better. They're just telling a story or telling a joke, but it's not a part of them and anybody could technically tell it. Mm-hmm. As you said, um, you were talking about funny Liz, little funny Liz and grown up funny Liz. Do you think about that part of your personality as like a separate thing? It's a good question. I'm really silly. And it took me a really long, even longer than like on stage funny Liz to be silly with my friend. Like I started to realize like who I am around my siblings, who I'm really close with or who I am when I'm with my friends that I've known for, you know, 15 or 20 or 25 years it's taken me much longer to show silly Liz on stage or even silly Liz around people I don't know very well. I think I would even probably have denied that I was silly um, because I've always been a written comedian and I've always been like a comedy nerd and it's all about craft. And, you know, Mm -hmm. when somebody talks about like beer too long and you're like, dude, it's a beverage. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, what are we doing here? Like, I can't, this is too much for just something you drink for 10 minutes. But I'm the same way about comedy where people are like, dude, it's not that big of a deal. But I was, I was so like intense about it and nerdy about it, both of it on itself. And then of course my own career only to kind of realize like, I might not be silly all the time on stage, or I might not be very active or, or bouncing around, but I love that stuff. I've always loved Robin Williams. So I like anything from like a philosophy comic, like a Richard Pryor, or, you know, Dick Gregory's right there to George Carlin. But I also love, you know, Mel, there's Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner and, and Robin Williams. And, and I, I loved Dane Cook when, you know, his earlier stuff, when he was coming up, like, I lo- like silly, but I wasn't allowing myself to show that side because I didn't know how to do it or I was ashamed of it or what have you. And I think even in the last couple of years, that's coming out a bit more, both in my writing, but just in how I present myself. Oh, that's cool. I, th- I feel like silliness can feel like more vulnerable in a way, like, because it's different to write a really smart joke than it is to show something that's like goofy and silly and like playful. Yeah. And I think I... <sighs> I didn't want to write fart jokes or poop <laughs> jokes or, you know what I mean? Like, so it was like, well, where's the line between this is a really smart joke about whatever. And here's something that's equally as silly as a fart joke. It's just not. So it's like, I, I think I still struggle with that balance, but I, again, going back to, if I am always uniquely myself, it doesn't matter what I talk about. It'll always shine through, through me and that'll make it different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I just thought of your cat abortion joke. 
And yeah. I think that's a really good line walker. Like you, it's really silly and it's really yeah. smart and sharp and true. And it's like, and I, and I think watching you tell that joke, it looks like you're having a really good time. And that's really nice. It's one of my favorites because it bombs. All the time. <laughs> like it is, I would like in the beginning, I was like, hey, I'm going to lose about 50% of you, but I just want you to remember all the good times we had. Like, I I would, you know what I mean? Like, I'm going to go into this joke. I know what it is. I know it's not for everybody, but remember when we laughed a minute ago? Like, remember that. And then I promise we'll go back to that. So just let me do this. And so, you know, when it was my audience, it always did well. And I I was always shocked when it did well in a, a situation I didn't think it would. But yeah, you're right. That was like a really, you know, political joke, strong joke, but it was filtered through very silly means. And I'm really proud of it. Like it's one of my jokes I'm the most proud of. And again, that's like, you know, my mom told me that. And I remember it comes from conversations with my sister. And that's where a lot of the silliness came from. Cause like I called up my sister and I'm like, did your mom is doing cat abortions? And she's like, yeah, everybody knows. (laughs) Mom's favorite pastime. (laughs) She has a sign hanging out front. Yeah, yeah. Don't have more cats. I had too many babies. Your cats are having too many kittens. Let's stop producing things. Let's tie some tubes. (laughs) What's even more interesting is I asked my mom because I'm I'm I can't do too much with the gory, but I do I do like science and I I like understanding things. And I go, what is a cat abortion? And she's like, first of all, because the the joke is because she had a bunch of um, staff come to my taping, and my mom like loves to come to anything, uh, and she loves all the jokes about her, even when they're not nice. She's like, that's you're not wrong. But she didn't tell me until after this. She's like, you know, what's the funniest part of that joke to me? And I was like, what? She's like, it's so factually wrong. Like, it's not the same. Like, they're, they're pretty much doing like almost like a hysterectomy. So it sounds like your parents um, came around to you not being a vet. Yeah, my mom like didn't care. I was also like 14. And she's like, I just get out of the house at some point. Like, I don't care. You know, my dad's like just very controlling. And, you know, I understand now his controlling comes from a place of like, parental survival. Like I'm going to die someday and I don't want you to be homeless right now. It's like, I don't want my friends to know you're homeless. And then eventually it's like, (laughs) I don't want you to be homeless. My mom is just like, as long as you're not asking for money, I really don't care. Like, I just want you to be happy and not ask for money. And then my mom, me and my mom have a very similar sense of humor. She's very dark. She was ranting in the car. They picked me up from the airport a couple of weeks ago. And my mom's complaining about my father because they're retired now and exhausting. <laughs> and she's complaining about my dad driving and just this exaggerated, crazy storytelling. And my mom's an awful passenger. Like you make a, like a, you stop at a regular red light, very paced. And she's like holding the old shit bar. And she's like, God damn it. You're... And I'm like, mom, this is driving. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, you just don't like being in a car. But she's telling the story about how bad my dad's driving is and he's being dangerous and da, 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 da. And I'm laughing so hard because I'm realizing, I was like, oh, I tell stories like my mother. Oh my God. Like my ranting is my mother. Like I am my mother. And then I have such a part of my dad where like I'm then like pulling it back and trying to be really logical about it. So my dad's really logical and my mom's really like emotional and like fucking the world's against me. And I was like, oh, I am a perfect combination of my parents. And my dad is very Catholic. So he doesn't like that I curse or talk about anything that has to do with like dating or sex. He de- He's also like from the fifties and it's like, he doesn't want anybody to know you have problems. And like my act is me basically being like, I've made all the mistakes and I have all the problems, <laughs> but he, he watched my special. I wouldn't let him come to it, but he watched it and he called me up and he was, wasn't that bad. Aww, and, like, and it wasn't like, like, and, like, and his reference, isn't that like, it was funny or not funny. It was like, I wasn't that offended. <laughs> like, so I, I really feel like I, like my mom gets it and my mom always loves what I, I do. And my dad is like, if I make my dad laugh, I'm like, cool. Like there's some jokes in there that didn't make him sad that I was his daughter. <laughs> oh, but neither of them have ever gotten in the way. They've never like tried it. Like my dad, I borrowed my dad's car every weekend for like five years wow. when I was like straddling between having a job and doing the road. So they're they're supportive in different ways. Is your mom allowed to come to your shows? Yeah, she comes to anything. It's not, she doesn't like driving and right. um, stuff like that. But if when they were in Jersey, she came to anything that was in New York or New Jersey. And now that they've moved, it's anything that's near there. But basically, I didn't let my parents see me until I was on TV. So that was like six years in. And they came. My mom looked terrified. I'm like literally taping for TV. I couldn't look at like the left side of the room because my mom looked like I was like about to jump off a building with no parachute. And my dad just looked disappointed. And I just, 
I remember afterwards, my mom was like, good job. And then my dad was like, he just looked sad. And I told him going forward, I was like, this is my favorite thing to do. And I know that it's not always going to be what you want, but you can't make me feel bad about it. So if you cannot control your face and how you feel, you're not allowed to come. And he was like, you're right. I'm not sure if this is for me and I don't want to discourage you. So it was like this nice compromise. But then sometimes, and then he would only come to shows that where I was like squeaky clean. Like I, I did a bunch of like running jokes at like a, a dinner before a marathon and he was running the marathon as well. Like that kind of stuff he can come to. And that's why he didn't come to my taping because who knows how he was going to feel. And I was too stressed. And I was like, I don't like, I cannot think about you and your feelings right now. It's just that he's like fifties and he doesn't think I should curse or whatever. Like it's not personal. It's just, he was raised wrong. That's how I feel. (laughs) I think that's how a lot of us feel about our dads. Like, but also like he's a feminist like it's so crazy for me to like there's definitely things he's like I don't like his perspective but also like I had a, a a bit go viral and I was doing all these feminist panels this was like eight years ago and I remember I had to tell my dad I was like hey I gotta go I have to do this feminist panel is it feminist sex jokes feminist sex jokes well feminist sex expositions sorry yeah, yeah that um, was, that was, it's a really yeah. good joke yeah and he did not enjoy it I did not show it to him But my brother told me, he's like, I heard your voice, but I knew you weren't home. And then I saw he was watching it and I just hid from him all day because I didn't want to deal with it. And my dad didn't talk to me for months. Not my problem. I don't care. Dude, you have such healthy boundaries with your parents. That's amazing. When you were 22, you had that conversation with your dad or something when you were like, that's pretty impressive, I think. But I also think my dad's impressive because I started going into the city 2002 as a tiny 16 year old, like I'm this height and I'm 16 and their rules were you can go, but you have to have a parental figure. So my parents would come or I'd have a friend's parents come and I didn't want my parents to see me. So my dad would take a train an hour and 15 minutes in, sit in a Starbucks for two hours and then come back on a train. And this is after working 80 hour weeks and having a bunch of kids. Like I was 16, 17 years old and their boundary was I, you know, post nine 11, and I'm going into seedy comedy clubs as a, in my mind, I was like overbearing. And then <laughs> think about it. And I'm like, I was 16. I'm barely five foot. I'm, you know, literally going into bars by myself. So they had that rule. I lied a lot, but you know, they came with me a lot and they always came. Sometimes I was elated. Sometimes I was in a bad mood and a teenager and I didn't talk to them because I didn't do well, but I got grounded when I was 17 and I lost everything. I couldn't hang out with my friends. You know, every weekend I had to babysit my siblings. I wasn't allowed to do anything on the computer except for schoolwork. Like everything got taken away from me. And I was doing stand up every weekend. And I went into my dad's room and I was like, hey, I was wrong. I accept all the penalties, but you can't take away stand up. It's the only thing that makes me happy. I work really hard. I'm always honest with you about it. Can I still do it? I will call you as soon as I get there. I'll call you as soon as I get back. I will not go anywhere else. You'll know exactly where I am, but you can't take away stand-up. And my dad was like, okay. Wow. And I, I give my dad so much credit, so much credit, because that he knew how important, how hard I worked. And he who was he to know if this was going to become a career? But he knew that wasn't extracurricular. You know what I mean? He knew that wasn't like hanging out with my girlfriends or like, you know, watching a movie or whatever, or being on the internet. He knew that was non-negotiable and he listened. And I, to this day, give my dad so much credit for being like, all right, everything else is gone, but you just have to be. And I was, I, I would call him. I'd be like, Hey, I'm at the club. Hey, I'm on my way home. Like he knew exactly where I was. Man, why don't I just hear about people's relationships with their parents? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I've also been thinking, you've been doing this for 20 years. You're really good at it. You're a woman. I know because you were on a panel of women talking about it. Hey, how's that gone, Liz? Has that been easy? Yeah. I've always said this and I've always believed it. It's it's harder in the beginning and then eventually it becomes easier. Like you really have to get over this hump because And I had a little bit of an extra hump because I I looked younger and I am younger. And who wants to hear a 16, 17, 18, 19 year old tell you about life? Like, you know what I mean? Who the fuck am I? So in general, being a, a young comic, but then also being a female comic, people don't like to listen to women. They don't think what we say has value. And then I'm a teenager. It's like, could not be less of value. But in the beginning, it was harder. 
in some ways I was very fortunate industry-wise because I, I was very much remembered. I'm young. I'm usually the only female comic there. I worked really hard. I was always diligent about writing. I had a unique perspective. So I got a couple of things early, but in general, I always felt like I was clawing my way for each opportunity and, and I didn't feel seen or understood and passed over a lot. And it was always like one female to zero females on a show. And then as I started to get TV credits, as I started to be seen as funny by my peers in the industry, um, as I started to headline more, I started to be the, the one female comic other comics recommended when they needed a female. I started to be remembered more because I was both female and the funny and I had these TV credits. And it just, if you get over that hump, because everybody starts at zero, just sometimes people get more leverage for whatever reason in different communities. But once you get over the hump, and I think as females started to make money for people, they started to see our voices as, as valued. I think the mixture of those two things, like it isn't as hard anymore. That doesn't, it's still hard in the beginning. It's always going to be hard in the beginning for everybody. And I think it is especially harder in the beginning for female comics or really any kind of minorities. Like I, I do think gay communities, you know, the trans community, any kind of minority in humor that's looked down upon. So like in humor, we believe black guys, Jewish guys, white guys are funny, but in, but we think women, Asians, Indians, you know what I mean? Gay people. Like, so if the stereotype is that you're funny, this is actually where you excel. But if the stereotype isn't, it's always an uphill battle every time you do a show, every time you present your ideas. But now that I have my own fan base, now that women's voices are important because we make money for people, now that my community knows who I am, now that I have TV credits, I don't feel that push. And then, of course, the confidence builds in you where I still get perceived as a young female. Nobody knows I'm in my 30s. Most people still don't know who I am, but I know who I am. I know that if you're looking on your phone and looking like I'm not worth your time, I can get you in the first 30 seconds. But that that in myself took time and also in my community that took time. But it takes much longer. It just does. And mm -hmm. it sucks. But I also think that's why some of the best comics right now are female comics. You just have to be 10 times better and work 10 times harder. It's not fair, but you have to do more work to get to the same level as other people. And I feel like that's how it was for a lot of minority comedians, that you would have to do 10 times more work just to be at the same place. And by doing 10 times more work, you're just better. And I do. I see it in my female comics. They just such stronger writers and such better work ethic. It, it just, it is what it is. You can't show up late and have people forgive you. You can't have a premise that is just kind of meandering and doesn't have a punchline because they're going to be like, knew it. And you just can't have any opportunity for anybody to be like, knew it. You can't validate their assumptions. Mm -hmm. I heard you give a talk. I think this was like six years ago now, but it was a really great talk on being dyslexic and its relationship to like your life and your stand-up career. And making connections there. I was thinking of this because you just said like when someone's like knew it and you're like, you got an edge. You make different connections. Can you talk about that? I, I, I think to the same way that I feel like I had to work harder as a female comic, I feel like I had to work harder both in school, but especially with comedy because I'm dyslexic. Like I do twice as much work as somebody that has like a neurotypical brain because I don't, I don't have a good memory. I don't hold things in my mind as easily and I'm very visual. So I will think of an idea. I'll write it down. I'll often then flesh it out, either handwrite it or type it kind of depends on what place I am. And then I perform it in whatever it is, you know, I'm ad-libbing, I'm forgetting stuff. I just kind of let it come out. I record it. Then I transcribe the recording and then I edit on paper because I can't really edit in my brain. So now I'm editing on paper and then I'll often rewrite it or retype it. And then I perform it again. I listen to the audio recording and then I edit it and I do that until it's done. And eventually I get to a point where I just have to write the tag or the extra line I said, and I don't have to keep doing it. But the, the process of visually editing and the process of constantly writing it and listening to it helps me memorize it, helps me make connections I wouldn't have made. But I, I know I have peers that are brilliant that are like, that's too much work, but I need to do too much work. It's how I remember stuff. It's how I make different connections. 
I just, I need to go through these extra motions. And I, it makes me sad because I now know how I learn. I started to understand how I learned in my twenties through comedy and through other things that I was trying to self-teach myself that I could have actually been a decent student if somebody had took the time to help me learn the way I know how to learn. And it's sad that it wasn't until after college, way after college, that I really started to understand how my brain works. But I do think my edge on most people in a creative format, especially in a written or spoken word format, is because my brain works differently. I see different connections. I I associate things in ways that most people wouldn't. But also through doing too much work, I remember the weird stuff I said, I'm very, I'm much more diligent. Like my, my friend, Adrian, she'd be like, Oh, what did I say on stage? And I was like, why didn't you record it? She's like, I thought I'd remember. And it's like, I would never trust my brain. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know what I mean? So yeah. like I've had to have a safety net because I know my brain doesn't work the same way so that I never lose a little thing that I said off the cuff. I always have it documented somewhere. And then I make sure I put it in the act and figure out where it goes. But I do twice as much work, but I think it it shows as opposed to, I felt like when I was younger, I was doing twice as much work and I I had almost nothing to show for it. I was Mm. still not a good student. Yeah. I think that watching you perform, you can see the work. Like it really like, I mean, it doesn't look like you're working when you do it. You are a very natural performer, but it's really tight. It's really thought through. It's like really, I don't know, when you're describing your process, when you're like, and then I transcribe the, I'm like, oh, okay. That's, that's how, there is not a misplaced word in this. Yeah. 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 No, and I, and I, I don't recommend what I do for everybody. It, it could be too much work for most people. But also, it depends on what kind of comic you want to be. I like, I like storytelling. I like fleshing things out. I like taking people on a ride that they wouldn't have taken before. And that means doing twice as much work to get a smaller amount. The same way, you know, you might write a thousand pages just to have the best 200 page book. I, I overwrite and I overflesh out to really figure out what I mean. And then I put it back together and I cut things and but I I do too much work so that nothing ever feels like like whenever comic asks like how do you know when you're done and I'm just like you just do mm-hmm. like, you know what I mean mm-hmm. like you I go to a place where I am not getting any laughs and people think I'm crazy and I'd be like we've gone too far <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm always so I'm always in a process of cutting down uh-huh. while most comics are still trying to build up so in some ways, my jokes are longer and they're not really suited for like short sets like an America's Got Talent or a late night set because most my average joke is anywhere from three to five minutes. Mm-hmm. And that's just not conducive to most TV shows. But if you go longer form, like I remember the first time I was like trying to tape an hour, we ended up not using it. Me and Carmen Lynch did a dual headlining thing where we were taping our hours. And I saw her set list. This is like eight years ago. I saw her set list and it was like, 50 jokes and she's more like a one-liner or whatever I had like 12 jokes (laughs) and like clearly there's little jokes throughout it but like I I tell stories I ramble I rant and she's just like idea 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 and there's no wrong or right way but I've always taken things to exhaustion and hers was always like boom 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 it's really just inspiring to talk to anybody who's like really invested in something for 20 years but to like know the depth that you go to with your material is like that is a long time to be working arduously on stuff I think that's really incredible like I think like if you could bottle that like just the willingness to work that hard on something you love I'd buy it millions yeah millions But it's interesting because I've been teaching. I'm a very, I'm a biggest. My parents owned their animal hospital. My dad's a big business person. Every I've learned a lot about business, and I like creative business. And I, I've talked with my my podcast friend, who's also a brilliant comic, Maria Shahada. Like we have these like let's get personal questions. And one was like, if you could go back to college, what would you have majored in? What would you have done? And I was like, probably marketing. Like I fucking wow. love this stuff. And like whenever I did for extra money when I was in college, I would do focus groups, and I was so fucking annoying. I was, I remember it was this skin, it was like sunscreen or whatever. And the question was, what's fun about sunscreen? And I was like, that's a bad question. You're going to get a bad, nothing's fun. It's a safety belt. It's a seat belt. Nobody puts on sunscreen because it's fun. They put on it because they don't want cancer. So what is, let me talk to your manager. 
<laughs> it was just dumb. And I stand by it. It was stupid. I was like 23. And I was like, you're dumb and you're bad at your job. I would be <laughs> awesome at marketing. So good at marketing. And I would, I would fucking Don Draper the shit out of stuff right now. But you know, I, but I do like that. And I do that for myself. I do that for my friends. I'm like really nerdy into social media and all that stuff. But I now see that I put so much effort into stuff that I know how to negotiate in a way I didn't know how to negotiate before. So especially with Zoom, people are kind of like shorting you where they're like, well, you don't have to drive and you don't have to go anywhere. It's like, yeah, but it took me six to eight months to write a half hour. That's, it doesn't matter that it's only a half hour right now. Mm. It took eight months to polish that half hour. That you're paying for eight months of work. You're not paying for a half hour of my time. And that's where I've really started to like grow as a business person, but grow as an artist, which is, you know, you look at a little painting, like I bought this when I was in Portland. Look at this little. No. I love it so much. And when they told me the price, I was like, that's too much for a small thing. But I love art. And I was like, no, how long did it take that guy to learn how to fucking paint? And he made this little thing and it, size doesn't matter. And I was like, I'm take, I want this. I want to support local artists. And that's how I feel back is that you're not, you know, you're not paying for this moment. You're paying for all the work I did to get here. I had to go through a breakup. I was <laughs> crying. I wrote this joke. I listened to too many sets while crying. You will pay for my tears. Yeah. And you don't get the same payoff on Zoom. You don't get what you are in the business for from doing a Zoom set. Like, Oh, unenjoyable. Yeah. Like, so it's like, you, you should pay more. <laughs> You're supposed there's a Zoom to- charge. Yeah, it's pandemic charging. Yeah. I'm sad and you will pay for it. Yes. I'm sad. You want me to make you happy? Yeah. Mm-mm. Exactly. This is a little meta, but but why do you think that people like stand-up comedy? Like, why do you think they like to go and listen to someone else talk at them so they can laugh? I've seen this all about community. I think I got into it because I felt lonely and I felt misunderstood and I felt like a freak. And by watching other comedians on TV and then eventually in clubs when I was a teenager, I felt like, oh, I think that way, or I never thought about it that way, or that is weird. Why do we do this? Or, you know, oh, he feels insecure about this. I feel insecure about this, or I would never admit this. And he's admitting that it just was a way to feel less alone and feel connected. And then to just kind of laugh at yourself or laugh at society. It just, it feels both the talking and then the mutual, the the group think of laughing about it it feels good. It feels like community. Like I'm not a big sports person, but the first country I ever did when I started touring overseas was Spain. And I was with a buddy of mine that I went to college with. And he took me to like a Madrid against Manchester soccer match. Don't care about sports, really don't care about soccer, but it was awesome. And people are cheering and they're singing and people are like, like, I didn't even know who I was like, I just knew I was on the Madrid side, but I was like, oh, I get it now. Like it's community. It's groupthink. We all all had the same goal. We want these, I don't know how many people are in the field, seven dudes (laughs) wearing tiny shorts to feel, to fucking win. And I feel the same thing about comedy. Everyone in this room got a babysitter, put on pants, bought a ticket, paid for parking and decided we are going to have a good time tonight. Mm -hmm. Nobody, nobody really goes, unless you're really a sad human who puts in all that effort to have a bad night. So everybody wants to feel connected and wants that feel good feeling. Same reason you would get a drink. Every time I have two glasses of this wine, I get a little buzz. I feel good about myself. Like people want that. Like it's it's a little more risky because if you get a Snickers bar, it's always going to hit that sweet spot. It tastes the same every time. You get a Big Mac, it tastes the same every time. Comedy, it's a risk. You know what it could happen, but you don't know. You don't know if this is going to give you a Snickers response or it's going to give you a, a peanuts response. Like you're <laughs> You have no idea. So I feel like for me as a comic, I went into it because I felt like a freak and they made me feel better. And then me as a performer, it's going, hey, is anybody else doing this? Has anybody else felt this way? And everybody's, when it when it works, they go, yeah. Or they go, no, but you're <laughs> so ridiculous. And I, my friend is like that. Now I understand my friend better. And I always think of somebody like Bill Burr. Like, I love Bill Burr. Is he a little misogynistic? A little bit. <laughs> Do I agree with every joke he has? Absolutely not. But a lot of his premises will piss me off. I'll be like, are you fucking, and we're friends and he's a wonderful person, but I'll be like, huh? And then he gets to the punchline. I go, oh, I kind of see how he got there. I, he actually took me on a journey that I still don't agree with him, but I understand how he got there. And I feel like 
I'm presenting how I got here. And when someone understands it or agrees with it or just acknowledges that we're all different, it just, it feels like a community. And I feel like the more fans I make, the less alone I feel, but the less alone they feel. Cause here's another person out there that kind of gets it. Mm. That was a fucking good answer to a weird question. (laughs) I'm going to try more weird questions in the future. Why do people like what you do? Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow, that was so great. Okay. And then the last question I wanted to ask you is just, is there anything else you want to say or make sure people know? Yeah. I mean, I have my newest special self-help me is free on YouTube. And then I also, you know, right the, the month of the first month of pandemic, I mean, we didn't know what was going to happen. I, I decided to put out my first, the video of my first album, uh, emotionally exhausting. So I have two free hours out of three hours that I've done free on YouTube. So you can go watch that. And then I do a weekly podcast with my friend, Maria Shahada, brilliant American comic, but she lives in London now. And then uh, my book, why cats are assholes uh, is for everybody, as I said. <laughs> it is for the world, unless you're a ferret owner. I make some not so nice ferret jokes and I apologize, but I stand by what I said. And I can't wait to get f- canceled by the ferret people. They love to write letters. And uh, and I'm starting to tour. Like I just did some outdoor shows in Portland and now I'm starting to do like limited capacity stuff. So I'm slowly putting some tour dates out and I have a whole new hour. It's not a whole new hour. I have a new 45 minutes from my special. And I wrote it mostly on Zoom and I feel proud of that. So that's awesome. Yes. And they, I've gotten weirder. When nobody's laughing, you don't really care about laughs and you start to say some weird stuff. Oh, that's so exciting. I really want to hear that. Yeah, I feel I feel good about it. It's definitely different. That's it. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Liz Mealy, who was so generous with her time and wisdom. She's also generous with her comedy. You can watch her latest hour on YouTube. It's called Self Help Me. It's really funny. Get her book. She's an author. It's called Why Cats Are Assholes. And it's for everybody, except if you have ferrets. Thanks so much to our sponsors, Confidence and Houseplants. Get them both. The music in those ads was by Scott Holmes. The music you're listening to now and in the intro is Poddington Bears, Carefree to Careful. That's it. Thanks. Oh, yeah. And thanks to Liz's dad for letting her do comedy that one time she was grounded as a teenager. Good parenting move. <laughs>